Well, this morning, um, before we get uh, towards the sermon, I do have just sort of a, a little bit of announcement or, or explanation for you. Uh, some of you have already gotten this news, but not maybe not everyone. I just wanted to, you know, make, just just a brief word of explanation. For the next seven weeks, um, uh, I'll be preaching a series in Second Peter. Okay, and uh, the reason for that, the reason that Chet is not, Pastor Chet's not up here uh, continuing his, uh, uh, his preaching through Ephesians is that for the next seven weeks, Pastor Chet is going to be on sabbatical. So uh, Pastor Chet has been, and, and I talked about this a little bit last week uh, when I made the announcement about, at the end of the service, about some of our salary recommendations. Pastor Chet has been here for four years laboring hard in the planting of Redeemer Church. He is carried uh, the, the bulk of that weight, and um, just we want to give him an opportunity to rest, recharge, and cultivate family. So uh, for the next seven weeks, Chet, Pastor Chet will still be around. He'll still be here. His family will still be here. Uh, in fact, he's back there running the sound uh, this morning, but he, he just won't be out front um, uh, leading those things that he normally leads. Uh, Caleb and I will be trying to take up as much as that uh, slack as possible to give him the opportunity to rest, recharge, cultivate family. So um, that's why we're pausing, taking a little longer break than normal uh, in Ephesians, and that's why then I get the privilege of a uh, uh, the longest series I've had the opportunity to preach at Redeemer Church seven weeks, and so excited uh, through Second uh, Peter. So, um, if you will turn in your Bibles to Second Peter, chapter one, we're going to look at verses one through four this morning. Uh, wow, man, there's this. I got man. I'm just going to move this because that's going to it's going to bother me. There's a for you who do not who don't stand up here right here. There's just like this little, and it just makes me feel like I'm going to fall down. That would be bad. Okay, Second Peter, chapter one. Verses 1 through 4 is what we're going to look at this morning. Uh, you know, it occurs to me uh, that we love transformation stories, right? It doesn't really matter. You know, it could be, oh, you know, a, uh, a beautiful but misunderstood young girl who is treated horribly by her evil stepmother and her ugly stepsisters and, and then through the, her virtuousness in enduring that difficulty and a little bit of magic from her fairy godmother, she's transformed into a beautiful princess and she wins the heart of the prince and, and lives happily ever after. Or, or maybe it's about young athletes in the middle of racial tension in, in, in Virginia coming together to win the state football championship, remember the Titans. Whew, good movie, right? Yeah. Or, or maybe it's just the transformation of a, of a shy, quiet hobbit who wants nothing more than to enjoy his hobbit hole in peace and quiet, but he's transformed into a great adventurer and hero to all of Middle-earth. Or even The Biggest Loser, which is a show I don't really ever watch on TV. But isn't it about people who have serious overweight problems and through training and motivation and effort and everything, they lose tons of weight and at least physically 
are transformed, right? We, we love these kinds of stories. We love to see and hear about transformation. I, I wonder why. Why do we love that so much? Is it, is it because we actually think of that as simply a pleasant fiction? It's a pleasant fiction that makes us feel good, but, but it's not real. We, we know that there isn't really transformation, but it is a pleasant fiction. Or, or maybe it's because we desire transformation in our own lives. We, we want our lives also to experience transformation. Is that another reason we love these transformation stories? Or perhaps we're searching for inspiration for our own transformation. Or maybe a formula. Maybe we're looking for a formula. It's like, okay, if I am virtuous in the midst of difficult circumstances, maybe somebody somewhere will come and transform my life. Or, or if we, if I, you know, I just got to have a common goal. If I have a common goal with some other people, we can be transformed like those, like those titans. Remember them. Okay. You know, or, or, I don't know. Maybe we're just looking for the formula. Maybe it's, oh, if I don't want to be a hero and I don't want to have an adventure, then I'll be transformed into a, you know, an, a hero in the midst of an adventure. I don't know, whatever it is. Maybe we're looking for a formula. Maybe it's like, hey, those, those, those guys and gals on Biggest Loser, they, okay, they do this, this, and this. If I do this and this and this, I will have that same kind of transformation. Maybe we're looking for a formula for transformation. Well, this morning in the text that we're going to look at, Second Peter chapter 1, verses 1 through 4, we're going to see transformation. We're going to see that God, God in Christ, graciously and powerfully transforms lives according to His purpose and for His glory. I think that's, that's the main idea that we're going to see in the text um, this morning. And, and really, this is what all of Second Peter is about. Second Peter is really... God's grace expressed to His people in His power to enable them to live obedient, godly, gospel-centered lives. That's why we have the title for Second Peter, God's Grace for Gospel Living. That, that's really what the entire book is about. And, and really these first four vo- verses this morning are sort of a, a, a microcosm of, of, the, of, of the whole book. Um, but in Second Peter, the apostle, he is writing his second and probably final letter to the churches, most likely of Asia Minor. And in his final instruction, he reminds them of this glorious fact, the fact of God's transforming work in Christ and their responsibility to live as those transformed powerfully by God's grace. Now, why, why does Peter give such an impassioned plea? Well, you know, for one reason, it's probably near the end of his life, and this sort of a, is sort of a goodbye letter. But, but also, Peter recognizes the, the tendencies that we have as we think about transformation. And really, it's, it's one tendency expressed maybe in one of two ways. It's doubt. Our tendency is to doubt when it comes to transformation. That is... That is just a result of our sinful condition and our pride or whatever. First of all, we doubt that our lives can be transformed. We doubt that there is really any transformation, that there is such a thing as life change. We just are convinced my life cannot change. I cannot be transformed. God cannot change me. That, that's one 
way in which we doubt. But perhaps the other way we doubt is we doubt, so we, we believe there's transformation, but we doubt the power is not ours. In other words, we think the power is ours. We think that, yes, transformation is possible and I do it. So we doubt that the power for transformation is not ours. But the reality is it's not ours. It's God who in Christ graciously and powerfully transforms lives according to His purpose for His glory and our good. So we either doubt transformation is possible or we doubt that it's not us who does it. Well, with that in mind, let's go ahead and move to the text. 2 Peter chapter 1, beginning in verse 1 through verse 4. To me and Peter, a servant and apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who have obtained a faith of equal standing with ours by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence, by which He has granted to us His precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. Now, Second Peter, as I said earlier, this is... Peter's second letter, second epistle, and most likely written to the churches of Asia Minor. In his first letter, he, he names them. And then in Second Peter later, he says, as I wrote to you before. So that's why we understand this. Most likely he's writing to the churches in Asia Minor. And I, and I know you see Simeon, and I actually pronounce it that way, but it's actually Simon. This is just an alternate spelling for Simon Peter, okay, the 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 disciple and apostle, okay? And so he is, we understand him to be the author, and he's writing uh, while he is in Rome, most likely awaiting persecution, most likely during the time of Nero after, you know, Rome burns and after Nero blames Christians for everything that's going wrong in the Roman Empire and begins a persecution of them, and Peter is most likely awaiting his death in Rome as he writes this this second and and final letter probably 64 to 67 AD roughly and and it is first an epistle a letter to the churches to encourage them to teach them but because this is a final letter and Peter has a sense that this is his final letter and, and alludes to the fact that this may be his last letter. There's also sort of this final bit of teaching. This I want to remind you of what I've taught you in the past. I, I want to encourage you to live rightly. You know, live right, righteous, godly lives because the time for me is at hand to leave this world. So... That's all sort of included in what Peter writes to the churches of Asia Minor. And here in verses 1 through 4, he talks so much about transformation. He talks about the transforming power of the gospel in our lives. And he, and he identifies the power of transformation, the process of transformation, 
and the purpose of transformation. Then those are, of course, going to be the main points of the message this morning. But that, that's what Peter talks about in these first four verses. And, and so I want us to first think about the power for transformation. Where does the power for transformation come from? Well, um, Peter identifies the, the power for transformation immediately in verse 1. He says that we have obtained a faith of equal standing, those who obtained a faith of equal standing with ours, by the righteousness of God, our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. So first, the power for transformation is found in the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. The righteousness of Christ is the power for transformation. Real life change. Being transformed from what we once were and used to be to something brand new. When we talk about transformation, that's what we're talking about. Something that wasn't there before is present now. Uh, a, a way of living that, that ruled is no longer the way of living. And now there's a new way of living. Um, choices that could not be made before can be made now. That's what we're talking about, a, a, a different kind of life. Not just simply the changing of some behaviors, but the cha- transformation from the inside out so that one is a, is a new person. That's what we're talking about when we talk about transformation. And, and Peter identifies that it's the righteousness of Christ, in part, that is the power behind that kind of transformation. And when we talk about the righteousness of Christ, we're, we're talking about His righteousness to save. You know, we, we, we understand, right? We understand rightly that we are not righteous. Don't we? Right. We, we, we understand we ourselves are not righteous. In fact, what, what, what are some things that the Scripture says about our righteousness? Okay, it's like filthy rags compared to what? Yeah, yeah, compared to, to the righteousness of God, our righteousness is like filthy rags. Okay, so in other words, there's no comparison, right? Okay, what else, what else does the Scripture say about our righteousness? It actually says we don't have any, right? Not having a righteousness of our own. We, we, we don't really have a righteousness. That's why, that's why there is no comparison, because our righteousness is really just nothing more than um, sin we need to repent of, right? <laughs> you know, because even, even in our own strength, us doing the best we can, that is tainted by sin, and that's a reality of our sinful condition, right? We believe in total depravity. And total depravity reminds us that every aspect of the human condition is corrupted and tainted by sin. So even our attempts to do good is still corrupted by sin. Even our attempts to live righteously are corrupted and tainted by sin, and it, it just becomes something that is filthy and dirty. And it no longer, it no longer is a righteousness. It's, it's something else. And, and 
That's our condition. But then here is Jesus. Here is Jesus who is God in flesh. He is, this is God the Son leaving heaven and coming to earth and living righteously. So, first of all, because Jesus is God, He is righteous. Because that, by definition, God is righteous. He is right. Right? He lives, acts, thinks, exists rightly. So, by definition, because Jesus is God, He is righteous. But then also, He has this practical righteousness. He lives righteously. He comes to earth and lives without sin. Though He is tempted in every way as a man, He is sinless and lives perfectly, lives righteously. And so it is that righteousness that comes simply by Him being God and then also that righteousness that is evident in His life in his attitude, in his thinking, in his perfect submission to the Lord. The scripture in Philippians 2 reminds us that Jesus was obedient to God the Father. He submitted to God the Father even to the point of death, death on a cross. So Jesus in all of his perfections, that righteousness, all of that then is imputed, given, gifted to us to save us, to transform us. It's uh, deposited into our account, if you will. Again, remember, it's, it's, it's imputed, it's gifted, it's nothing that we've earned. It's just given by an act of grace and a powerful act of grace. It is that righteousness of Christ imputed to us that saves us, that transforms us. So... The power for transformation is the righteousness of Christ. But it's also God's divine power. Look at verse 3. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to His own glory and excellence. So it's His divine power also that is the power for transformation because it's his divine power that is granted transformation to us and and here's how we need to think about divine power divine power is god's power and so that is the ultimate power in the universe and so when god exercises his divine power god is doing something that only god can do that that's the glory and the beauty of divine power because it's it's the power to do what only God can do. And so when it comes to transformation, life transformation, true change of heart and direction and goal and purpose of life. That's what we that's what we're talking about when we say life transformation that can only be accomplished by God because only divine power can accomplish it. Accomplish it. It's that same kind of power that created the universe and that sustains the universe. Only divine power can do that. Only God can create something out of nothing. Only He can speak the universe into existence. Only He can 
can sustain it by the word of His power. That's divine power, God power, the power to do what only God can do. And that is the very power that fuels transformation. Because transformation can only be accomplished by God. So it's the righteousness of Christ. It's God's divine power. But it's also God's promises. Look also what it says in verse 4, by which He granted to us His precious and very great promises so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. So it's the righteousness of Christ, it's God's divine power, but it's also God's promises. And God's promises are really nothing more than His very true Word. That's what God's promises are. God's promises are His very true Word. It, it, it is the expression of His will. When God makes a promise, God is expressing His very will to us in His very true Word. And so let's, let, let me ask you this question. Does God's Word ever fail? No. So will God's promises ever fail? No. They, 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 they will not. God's promises are His very Word. Does God always accomplish His will? Yes, He does. God always accomplishes His will. His purposes are always accomplished. And so if, if God and His promises are expressing His will and expressing His purposes, then do His, do His promises ever fail? Well, no, they do not. So the power of God's true and eternal Word, are, that power is expressed in His promises to us. And they then become the power of transformation because they are an expression of God's very will. We know that when God says, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you, we know we can bank on that promise because God is saying to us, it is my will to never leave you and to never forsake you. I'm giving you my word that I will never leave you and I will never forsake you. And because that is tied you know, to His word and His character which never fail and never change and, and are always true and are always faithful, then we know we have that precious and great promise that God will never leave. And God will never forsake. And that is transforming to us. It's transforming to know that every promise of God is tied to His character and to His Word and they will never fail. The power for transformation is the righteousness of Christ. It's God's divine power, the power that only God can provide. And it's also fueled by His promises. So what do we do with that? What is the application of God? And hey, uh, just so that you'll know, there's going to be more than one application, so we're not near the end of the sermon. Okay. Little, that was parenthetical. Okay. Well, we put away doubt. That's how, that, that is the application of this truth about the power for transformation. The power for transformation in the righteousness of Christ, God's divine power, in His great and precious promises. Put away our doubt. And here's what I mean. Stop doubting 
that transformation is a reality in your life. Because he, here's what happens when we doubt that transformation is a reality in our lives. We're, we're saying, Jesus, your righteousness is not enough. Your righteousness, righteousness is not sufficient power to transform my life. The poverty of my life, the spiritual poverty of my life is greater than your righteousness. When, when we doubt that transformation can be, in a, be a reality in our lives, that it is a reality in our lives for those of us who are in Christ, then we are saying, God, your power isn't sufficient to transform my life. The, the mess of my life, the sin in my life, the, the sinful habits in my life are greater than your power. Although you spoke the universe into existence, man, do you see how prideful that becomes? God, your power could speak the universe into existence, but you can't change me. What does that mean? It means I'm greater than the universe, right? I mean, if God's power can create and sustain the universe, but not change my life, then I become greater than the universe. Man, there, it, it, isn't, it, isn't it interesting to, to look at something like doubt that would seem, it would seem like humility, right? It would seem like humility to say, oh, you know, I'm just a worm, I'm a terrible person, you know, I, nobody can change me because I'm so bad, I'm so bad, but it's still about me. And what seems like humility is really pride. You see that? So put away your doubt. But then it's not just the doubt. Remember, it's not just the doubt that transformation can be a reality. It's also the doubt that the power to transform is not mine. In other words, I doubt that it's I doubt that anyone else can do this, only I can do it. That kind of doubt is again pride in self. It says, I can transform myself. I can do this. I can change me. I have the power to change myself. I don't need the righteousness of Christ. I don't need God's divine power at work in me. Um, I don't need the surety of God's promises. I can do this. Now, I, I know that we don't consciously or probably don't consciously think that way. But we do act that way, don't we? We do act that way. When, when, we, when we simply fail to be vulnerable and open in the community of faith about our sin. We have secret sin and we keep that sin to ourselves and say in our minds, I can fix this. I can fix this. And, and we don't ever tell anybody. We don't tell anybody about that struggle, about that sin. We don't put ourselves under accountability. Or, or we'll just we'll hint to it, but not fully disclose. Okay? Um, and why? Because, well, deep down, we think 
we think that we can fix it. And the power to change is in, in us. By our, our will and our determination. Or maybe our fear. Maybe it's, you know, like, you know, I, I know in my own life, when I had struggles of secret sin, okay, that I was attempting to fix on my own, doubting that the power to transform was, was not mine, okay, thought it was mine. Um, that was motivated as much by fear as it was anything else. I, I was, you know, like I was afraid to tell anybody, afraid what people would think of me. Of course, we're going back to the pride issue, you know. And, and so I, I can fix this, okay. And when we think that way and act that way, we're we're doubting that the power to transform belongs to God, and we we think it belongs to us, and then therefore we start trusting in our own righteousness, right? When I think. I can fix my sin problem on my own, then my faith and trust is in my righteousness, in my power, and the promise that I make to myself. You see, we have to put away our doubt. Whichever doubt we hold, whichever doubt is our sinful tendency... We must put that away and trust completely in the righteousness of Christ, God's divine power, and His great and precious promises to transform us. But not only does Peter talk about the power of tra- for transformation, but also the process of transformation. Because there is a process involved in life transformation. And... Peter talks about that in verse 2 and again in 3. Verse 2, May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. And then again in 3, His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of Him who called us to his own glory and excellence. The, the process of transformation, the power, the fuel, is found in God. The, the, the process is in knowing God by faith. That is the process of transformation. The way in which God goes about transforming us is through knowing God by faith. And when we talk about knowing God or knowledge of God, it's more than knowing about Him. Though that's part of it. Don't get me wrong, we must know about God. We must know about Christ. We must know about, about God the Creator who has created uh, the universe and man in his own image. And we must know that man has rebelled against God and sinned and and therefore separated from God. And we must know that God, uh, for his own glory and to accomplish his purpose in love, sent his son Jesus to earth to live the life we couldn't live, to live perfectly, and then become a ransom, uh, a substitute for us, dying on the cross, so that our sin might be forgiven through the response of repentance and faith. 
we are forgiven, we are saved, and we have the hope of eternal life. We've got to know that. That's got to be knowledge that we have. But we have to know it not by intellectual assent, but we've got to know it by faith. In other words, it's acting on what we know. That's really what faith is. Faith is trusting and acting on what we know. We, it's, we know that Jesus is our Savior. We must have faith in Him as Savior. We must act on that knowledge. And that's, that, that's why so often in the Scripture, you know, you know, faith is put together with actions, and and yes, you know, e- even even in Ephesians uh, two, you know, we we see, okay, yes, uh, uh, we are saved by faith, and 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 we're saved by grace through faith, and and so grace comes first, faith faith comes after because faith is is the means, but the power for for that salvation is God's grace, um, and then. We see that we see that in eight and nine, and then in verse ten, we see. But there's this place for our faith, our knowledge, to be acted upon. We are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which He has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, there's this place for our faith to be in action, or our knowledge to be in action, which is faith. So. No, it's the knowledge about God, but it's knowledge about God that is acted upon in faith that becomes relationship. It becomes relationship. We then are in relationship with Christ because of that knowledge that is acted upon, which is faith. Knowing God in faith is the means of the process of our transformation. It is what God uses to transform us, to grant us everything for life and godliness. Not only a power for transformation, not only a process for transformation, but there is also a purpose of transformation. God has a purpose for transforming our lives, and we see it expressed throughout this text this morning. We see it, I think, first in verse 2. May grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Grace and peace being multiplied in you. Grace and peace are part of that purpose for transformation. We are transformed so that we might experience, have multiplied in us, grace and peace. Well, what is grace? Well, grace is God's grace, His His favor upon us that is unmerited, undeserved. You know, it's it's God's amazing grace, incredible grace. 
Grace that is so, so undeserved. To say that grace is God's unmerited favor is correct, but yet seems to just still be an inadequate expression of what grace is. It's, it's all the richness of God's goodness given to us who are the least deserving of it. It's God, when He has every good reason to destroy us, ignore us, pulverize us, instead He gives us the riches of all His goodness. And that just really kind of begins to scratch the surface of what God's grace is. But that's what is multiplied to us as we are transformed by the power of God. But then... Not only grace, but there's also peace. And, and, and peace is, is simply the lack or the absence of enmity. In other words, we are no longer enemies of God. So everything that is true and a reality when we are enemies of God... When peace is multiplied in us through this transformation that God does by His power, then all that is, is true and a reality about being an enemy of God is gone. It's taken away. We're no longer at enmity with God. We're no longer enemies of God. But then the opposite becomes true. In a, in a fantastic, incredible, glorious way, we move from being an enemy to being in His Family. We go from the, the, the fiercest enemy to a beloved son or a treasured daughter. That's what it means to have peace multiplied. God's peace, God's grace, and God's peace multiplied in us through this transformation that takes place. But it's not just grace and peace. It's also life and godliness. His divine power has granted to us all things that pertain to life and godliness. Wow. Well, what's life? I think it's pretty easy. It's not death, right? And what's our reality apart from Christ? Death. Yes, both physical and spiritual. I mean, apart from Christ, we're going to die. And that death will be eternal. In fact, apart from Christ, we're already dead. That's what it says in Ephesians 2. We are dead in the sins and trespasses in which we once walked. Okay, We, we were dead in our sin and our trespasses. Dead is dead. But this transformation that takes place by the power of God through the righteousness of Christ delivered by His very great precious promises through knowing God by faith. <laughs> that, okay, that life is eternal. It's, it is being made alive. And then godliness. That's also part of the purpose of that transformation. Not, that, not only that we just be alive and that we live eternally, but then that we would live godly. 
So that we would have life, have it eternally. It would be a gift from God, but then also that that life would be a godly life. And it's and, and remember what the scripture says right there in Second Peter. It says that that His divine power has granted to us everything necessary. Again, only God can do it. Nothing else is required for life and godliness. Do you know that you already have everything necessary to live a life of godliness? And what what is godliness? Well, I mean, it's it's living a life in reverence of God. That's godliness. But then there's also this, and it's also being God-focused with our lives. So it's living a life of reverence toward God. It's also just a life that is focused toward God. But then it's also a life that also growingly imitates God. God-likeness. Godliness is also God-likeness. Now, you know, don't, you know, you know you're, not, you're not hearing me uh, say that we become God or that we become exactly like God or that we have worlds and universes of our own that we're going to rule someday, okay? <laughs> you're not hearing me say any of that, okay? But what I am saying is that we share somewhat in God's nature. I mean, we are created in His image. Then we are fallen, but part of that restoration process, that redeeming and restoring process, is making us more and more like Him. So we do identify with Him, and we do grow in likeness to Him. And that also is godliness. And we've already been granted everything necessary for that kind of living, for that kind of life. And then... Also notice in verse 4, by which he has granted to us his very, his precious and very great promises, so that through them you may become partakers of the divine nature, having escaped from the corruption that is in the world because of sinful desire. We also, uh, another purpose of this transformation is freedom and likeness. Freedom. From sin. He notices that we are freed from the corruption uh, that is in this world because of sinful desires. In other words, we're freed from the slavery of sin. That's another purpose of our transformation. We're no longer slaves to sin. We've been set free from the slavery to sin. And, and, and now we have the power and ability in godliness to battle sin, to slowly eradicate and put to death sin in us because God empowers us and transforms us to do so. But we are freed from the slavery and the, the ultimate power of sin. And we have this sharing of the divine nature, which I've kind of already alluded to, but it's this being like God, being just having a likeness to Him. We slowly and slowly look more like God and less like this world when our, when, when our lives are examined. That's what it means to have this likeness to God. And this is rich and beautiful. And it's a reality for us. So, what do we do? What do we do with this process of transformation? What do we do with this purpose of transformation? Well, when it comes to process, believe what you know. 
Remember, said that, that the process of transformation is knowing God by faith? Well, the application for that is to believe what you know. And remember, belief, and I'm using that in the, in the context of faith, is, is, is action-oriented. It's live out what you know to be true by faith. That's, that's the application for this process of transformation. But then the purpose, the purpose of transformation. Well, the application there is, is first to rejoice. Re, rejoice in this purpose of transformation. You're recipients of God's grace. God's grace is multiplied in us. His peace we, his peace that surpasses all understanding guards our hearts and our minds in Christ Jesus. Rejoice and be at peace. We, we have everything necessary for life and godliness. Then let's live godly. If we have all that's necessary for godliness, let's, let us live godly lives. Live free. If we have been set free from sin, then let us live as those who have been set free from sin. And be like Him. Now, realizing that, again, all of this is God's purpose in transforming us. And so He does it. He does this. He... I'm not asking you to... Make grace and peace multiply in your life. Because you can't do that. But I am suggesting that you rejoice in God's grace. Recognize it in your life. Recognize it in the lives of others around you. Uh, I, I know that you can't create peace, but, but, but since that peace is being multiplied in you, then live at peace. Be at peace. Enjoy that peace. Rejoice in that peace. Uh, I'm not saying that you need to, to get a, a, a list of do's and don'ts so that you know how to live godly, but, I, but what I am saying is that God is, has called you to live a godly life, and now He has empowered you to live a godly life. Embrace... His power at work in you to live in a godly way. We still have to struggle with that energy. We still have to work with that power that's in us. Yes, God empowers it. He fuels it. But there, there's, there's also a struggling with that power. And so that's, that's what I'm suggesting, asking you. I think that's the, what the text is asking us to do today. Let's love the greatest transformation story of all. The transformation story of the dirtiest loser, the vilest criminal, and the fiercest enemy being transformed into a beloved son and a treasured daughter. It's our own transformation in Christ. It's transformation powered by Christ's righteousness, God's divine power, and His precious and great promises. It's transformation granted through the process of knowing God by faith and transformation whose purpose is grace and peace and life and godliness and freedom 
and likeness to God. God, in Christ, graciously and powerfully transforms lives according to His purpose for His glory and for His good. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, thank You that You change us, that You transform us. And God, we confess and recognize that we have no power to do that of ourselves. It's You and You alone. God, I pray that we would rejoice as those who have been transformed. God, I pray that we would praise as those who have been transformed. God, I pray we would live as those who have been transformed. For Your glory, in Jesus' name, Amen.